Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien from Goldsmiths College, University of London. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Stephen Fielding from the University of Nottingham about his new book, A State of Play, British Politics on Screen, Stage and Page, from Anthony Trollope to the Thick of It. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. Uh, this week, I've got the pleasure of being in Manchester, in a quite cool bar, um, and I'm going to be talking to Professor Stephen Fielding from the University of Nottingham. Uh, about his new book, State of Play, which uh, is a history of the representation of politics, uh, or British politics more specifically, in all different forms of fiction over the course of the uh, 20th century. Is that right? <laughs> you gave me a quizzical look there. Yes, I think, I think that's a fair description. I wouldn't be suing you uh, on the basis of that description. Um, I guess the place to start is maybe... How did you end up writing State of Play? Because it's, uh, I think it's quite unusual for a political science book. And was your background in kind of literature, drama, history? Well, the first thing is I would never claim, or I would certainly never want to be, described um, as being a political scientist. (laughs) Um, My first degree was in history. I did a PhD that was in social history um, for Irish Catholics in Manchester and Salford, which strayed into the politics and the popular politics of being an Irish Catholic immigrant. And from there, I fell in with some other historians of uh, the Second World War and wrote uh, a book with them about popular politics. So my interest has always been in how people have related to formal politics and how formal politics is tried and usually failed to relate to popular culture. Um, and that work on the 1940s uh, led into the 1960s and um, different changes that were going on in British society and how the Labour Party perceived those changes. So a lot of my work is about perception as much as reality. Um, and then I reached a point, I was teaching at the University of Salford, and I reached a point where I realised that most students who were studying politics weren't really that interested in politics. And I was... That's quite an awkward revelation. Yes, I think quite a common one. Um, So I was thinking, well, how do I get to these students and talk about politics in a way that they might be more interested in? And actually, I'd reached a point in my career where I could kind of choose what I wanted to do a bit more. And I wasn't having to chase grants, or at least I didn't feel that I should. And I didn't have to fit into any... um, preconceived ESRC diktat about if you want to get grants this is what you've got to do so I I felt I was free to choose and be a bit self-indulgent I genuinely thought that to talk about films to talk about television in particular um, and how they constructed how politics um, is I thought that might be a way into getting them interested in it and it actually might be a way of trying to understand why many people don't even don't, don't like politics have got certain ideas about politics um, so it kind of it came from that, and, and initially as a kind of a teaching imperative, um, and just a development of what I was already interested in. So I'm, I, I didn't have any expertise in in theatre, in, in drama generally, 
in film studies. I mean, I just went in that and uh, and just started thrashing about. And I'm I'm assuming that all the all the specialists, all the disciplinary. Um, Well, I was doing that. Okay, that was an interesting noise. Um, oh, that may be the people from the media studies. We're trying to, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to edit and screaming, close, and close it down, close it down. Um, yeah, the people that, that take it upon themselves to impose disciplinary boundaries, I'm sure they'll hate this book. And they'll say, oh, he's not doing this, he's not doing that, and he always overlooked that. Well, fair enough, but this is, that's not the book I wanted to write. I mean, it's interesting in a way that um, the book is both, I think, important academically, and the introduction makes uh, a very clear academic point about um, political science and political scientists have this problem about not understanding what politics means to citizens. Whilst at the same time, certainly in um, reviews and kind of across the British media, it's got very favourable press um, and it's been talked up by kind of various columnists and, and stuff like this. So you seem to have achieved something with the book that is almost unique in a way that, you know, you're talking to a set of academics about the limitations of the field, whilst like civilians want to read it as well. And was that something you were kind of conscious of when you were writing it? Well, yeah. So I think that there's only been one review so far that I've uh, that's been from an academic, um, and he didn't like it. Actually, there was somebody from another discipline who completely slaughtered it. But you're right. That generally speaking, um, from the general kind of reader and journalists and people like that, it's been. It's been welcomed much more positively. Well, I think because I'm a historian who's in a school of politics and I'm kind of a, a liminal figure um, in terms of the discipline of politics, that I basically didn't have an investment in trying to um, follow the dictates of of the discipline um, of history or or politics. So I wasn't. I just wanted to talk to a more general audience anyway. And hopefully I um, was able to straddle the, the addressing more conventional academic concerns with actually making it accessible and allowing people who don't have the codes yeah. um, to, to work out what's being said. So that, that might get, you know, that's I got a lot of the, um, the academic stuff out of the way in the introduction. And hopefully that set it up quite nicely. And then the rest of it is, is essentially telling a story along a set of themes that cross um, all those different kinds of political fictions um, from the late 19th century, middle 19th century to the present day. And, and it's really interesting how, uh, I guess, those themes tell us things about life in British society. They tell us things about the British political system. They tell us things about, uh, I guess, how media functions and one of the things that we'll talk about later on is uh, the profound impact of political changes on the media and how they are reflected back by the media themselves when they're you know, thinking in terms of what gets commissioned on television and stuff like this but one thing you make uh, I think abundantly clear in the introduction is that there are a kind of a bunch of standard tropes um, in fiction uh, that in some ways undergo profound shifts but actually sort of stay the same. So, for example, uh, you talk a lot about how uh, British political leaders uh, are almost um, kind of tied up with ideas about masculinity, are presented as men, sometimes presented as, as pompous, are sometimes presented uh, as kind of corrupt, um, are occasionally presented as honest outsiders, which initially is to do with being working class but then becomes to do with being women and things like that so i wonder if you could just talk through maybe the kind of the key tropes that seem to run right across uh, the book 
Well, there's, there's a certain misgiving about power, um, a, a lack of trust, um, and, and also um, a certain scepticism um, about the, the nature of democracy. Mm. About it's most, most of the, the things I look at um, look are basically exploring the failure of popular sovereignty, the failure of representative democracy to deliver on its representative function. Um, now, in Britain, um, we've, we've famously got the, the mother of all parliaments. Um, we, 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 gave, we gave the world democracy. Um, but, and we, we've got a system which is basically, it, it's changed and adapted from a, an elite way of governing the country, basically to bolt on um, voting. And, and so the primary concern, and you can see it um, in, in reflected in, in, in many of the fictions, actually, some, particularly the early ones, the primary concern is to ensure the continuity of government and that the people are disregarded and are seen as being a mob um, that, that has to be somehow or another conjoined to this wonderful machine. Um, and... And you can see that right from the start in Trollope, and very, he's got very severe misgivings about the, the nature of democracy. And you could say, well, he was writing in a pre-democratic period. But you can see these ideas, and this is, this is the interesting thing about fiction, because in, in some ways, people that write fiction, some of them are actually politically engaged, some of them are actually elected politicians. But for many, many ways, I don't, and I don't think I use the term in the book, people that write these, these political fictions are vernacular political theorists. So they're popularising and certain key ideas. And one of the key ideas is the incapacity of the people. There are two kind of ways, the two major tropes are really, you can't trust the politicians for all kinds of reasons. But there's another one, which is you can't trust the people. Now, the latter is kind of not disappeared completely, but in, in the populist kind of political culture that we now live in, you, one of the things you can't do is, is, is question what the people want. But certainly, um, for well into the post-war period, and, and, this, and this goes with uh, a type in, in certain narratives which has now almost disappeared, you have got positive depictions of the good politician who is usually upper-class male, uh, cool patrician, and, and that person is, um, is a person that allows democracy to flourish despite the shambles and the and the, the, the mob-like tendencies of the, of the people concerned of, of, of the ordinary people so um, I think those kinds of those are two, two, two of the main ones you can't trust the politicians and you can't trust the people um, play, and playing against <clears throat> specific historical events gaining legitimacy from them but it's underlying underlying going all the way through and you do show how that shifts there isn't a kind of a a continuity in the sense of uh, the examples from Charlotte and to an extent uh, Oscar Wilde as well that you give early on in the book where there is a sense of the need to kind of I guess defend the status quo from uh, what do you call it you know you, you sort of show how Trollope is scared of the parties the press the people in general mm. women in particular yes. uh, and how these things would become more important but by the time we get later on um, into sort of 1980s 1990s this sense of being fearful of people in Michael Dobbs House of Cards for example almost becomes a sense of well you the people are complicit in, in all of this as well you know we're not going to fear you anymore because social and economic changes but the things you're moaning about are your own fault you know? and, and it's really interesting that even that continuity shifts as well yes there's, there's a, a 
there's a, a Dennis Potter television play called Vote, Vote, Vote for Nigel Barton, which the, which the BBC finally broadcast in 1965 after having a lot of misgivings about it. And it's essentially about the um, demoralisation of an idealistic Labour Party candidate in a safe Tory seat fighting a by-election. Now, Dennis Potter, the year before, had fought um, in a safe Conservative seat for the Labour Party. And for him, it was a kind of epiphany. And it put him off politics, formal politics, for the rest of his life. Um, but there's a key scene towards the end, because what it, what it, describes, what it shows is uh, it's how terrible um, local parties are... There's a cynical, and the key character is a cynical agent. He was a standard figure going all the way back to Disraeli through Trollope, and all, all, you know, the agent is often the heart of darkness in the political process, fixing things. Even even all the way back to Dickens and and Pickwick Papers and the Eden School by election of eighteen thirty seven. But what Potter does very very unusually um, is it has the agent towards the very very end after the viewers see how terrible politics is to look at the camera and basically essentially to say, you're to blame, mm. uh, to the viewer. And that doesn't happen very often. It happens in, in different ways. Um, and Charlie Booker, in in, um, in the Waldo moment, um, in his comic dark, satiric, dystopian um, Channel 4 series from 2013, has a similar kind of thing, where the people are seen to be, the stupid people are seen to be complicit in, in the awfulness of politics. And, you know, both Potter and Charlie Brooker are, are basically saying this is not a good situation, but the people are complicit in it as well. It's very unusual. Nowadays, it's populism um, that the people are betrayed, that it's the politicians who are part of a conspiracy, whether it's one that's just of their own making or one involving Washington, if it's in the 1980s during the Cold War, or global companies nowadays in the neoliberal world in which we all live, but they're part of a conspiracy against the people. Um, which is developing a thing that was kind of there, certainly in films and comedies of the early 20th century. Um, so, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting development trying to place where the people are in this process. And, and as I say, there was they were a threat in terms of Trollope in the early days when Westminster politicians were trying to deal with the extension of the franchise. Um, they were disregarded and, and feared in some ways also by socialists who, like George Orwell and his depiction of the proles. And, and also actually, in chapter three, it's really interesting where you talk about how two writers that should be absolutely opposed on everything, Evelyn Moore and Jimmy Priestley, they share a similar, uh, if not a right hostility uh, to the people, but certainly this kind of fear and suspicion of, are they really capable of being put in charge? Yes. I think with, with even more, it was now our hostility. Um, but J.B. Priestley, who was meant to be the voice of the people during the Second World War in the People's War and encouraged people to vote Labour and to embrace a new future um, after the war, um, in his in his novels um, of the wartime, um, of, he, it's, it's as if he can't actually imagine the people themselves doing politics. It's about um, getting them to vote Labour. And then, and then shut up, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, but I think in that in that way that you can, what what those what that shows, um, and what other fiction show is the nature of the peculiar nature of British political culture, um, that it, it does disregard popular agency, um, and yet at the same time you do get in the in the same way you get in the United States, um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Mm. 
and the outsider coming in and cleaning house and exposing corruption and dealing with the system because, you, of course, you can't rely on the politicians to do that, so you have to rely on a Boy Scout from the middle of nowhere, James Stewart, to go and do it. And, and in the, insofar as that was a character that in, in American political fiction was actually quite common and, and went on to become even more common after the, after the Second World War, then, then in Britain this kind of populist figure becomes much more apparent, a much more popular populist figure. So this mis- the misgivings about the people kind of fade away, as, as the elite, I think it may be, kind of may, may, may be that one of the explanations, the political elite starts to lose faith in itself. Um, then, then these fictions are often where the outsider, as you were saying, first of all, in Britain anyway, it's the working class, then the women. They're not so much ethnic minorities, mm. as is the case in the United States, where the outsider is of that nature, um, that that becomes much more um, apparent because um, the elite themselves lose faith in themselves, but also the people out there lose faith in the elite to solve those problems. And it's interesting how this happens later in, in the sense of if one was telling, uh, I guess, a sort of standard post-war story about Britain, you'd say, you know, the height of uh, the importance of, of the people, however we define them, is 45, is the kind of transformation of Britain under the Labour government, the post-war settlement. But you're really, really, uh, I think, uh, articulate in the book where you talk about, well, actually, this is a bit of a romantic myth to an extent that although there were high levels of uh, votes for two main political parties, only or no more than 10% of the population was actually a member of the political party, and really the sort of uh, post-war settlement is to do with, if not rejecting populism, but saying it's time to go back to the supremacy of Westminster. Um, and in some ways this is represented um, by hostility to certain bits of the Labour Party. You give the example of uh, the party manners um, kind of controversy uh, over how Labour are represented, but also it's uh, to do with, I guess, a sense that both political parties have that kind of disconnection from, from popular politics. Yes, I mean, t- to some extent, this is benefiting from the work that I did um, prior to moving into into fiction in, in terms of popular culture and the, and the Labour Party in, in the Second World War, 40s and into the 60s. Um, that that yeah, there were attempts within the Labour Party to try and engage uh, and to mobilise um, the people uh, in a more active way, which didn't really lead to anything very much. Um, but that... I mean, Hugh Gates' school um, in the early 1950s kind of useful, very useful kind of speaks to, to sum up um, a certain attitude. Uh, Hugh Gates was just about to become the leader of the Labour Party when he made this speech. And, and he recognised that many people in Britain at this point in time um, didn't think that politics was a, a good thing, that it, you know, that it, it, was a, it was a place where bad things happened, that the parties were all the same. I mean... He actually mobilised many of the arguments that people have got today about how, how people perceive politici- politicians. But what he said was, but these people are wrong, uh, they are ignorant, and just dismissed it. Um, that Hansard Society, which does a lot of good work today in Britain about trying to sort of promote a, a better knowledge of how Parliament exists, was formed in 1944 by um, Stephen King Hall, because he recognised, as did other people during the Second World War, that there was a loss of faith in, in established authority, that there were lots of independent, anti-political candidates, um, the people that rejected the way that Britain was governed and winning seats. And he basically 
saw the Hansard set as a way of just educating people into understanding how things really work. Mm. So there's a kind of a faith there um, about the virtues of, of the Westminster system, but they're clearly recognising that that faith is amongst the elite and it doesn't really percolate out there to ordinary people. They're, they're voting. And the, why they're voting in great numbers is a, is a question that's interesting, but it isn't necessarily because they have this unalloyed faith that everything is going to go right because they're voting for Clement Attlee or Winston Churchill. There is, there is, there is a scepticism there, which, um, which these, many of these fictions um, are tapping into, um, and a mistrust which becomes bigger and greater as, as that post-war period develops. And, and it, I guess it becomes bigger and greater with some seriously profound changes in uh, telecommunications, particularly television, and to an extent the decline of cinema. Um, and, and it's really interesting in the book that, um, at least in, in my understanding of the book, the kind of the key moment for television isn't really the 50s, because you're talking a bit about you know numbers of people owning and stuff like this. It seems to be the 60s where you get the satire boom, you get kind of mass television consumption, and I suppose, you know, you draw on this a little bit as well, you get a particular group of, of elites who are willing to sort of have a go at themselves. Um, so you mentioned kind of in passing things like uh, that was the week that was uh, the birth of Private Eye, which is a satirical uh, magazine, and that kind of, uh, I guess, moment of, you know, there are scandals going on in Parliament, there are questions about the parliamentary elites, and seemingly, what was it you call them, is it? Tory anarchists or something like yes, that. Yes, not my phrase, but yeah. yes, it's a useful phrase. Um, well, I think I think the big change is is in censorship, which which actually does occur at the same time, and you can see the two things, you know, increasing propensity to satirise um, those in those with authority of, of all kinds, and and the decline of censorship and the, the lifting of prohibitions has been quite important, and that the role of the media. Um, television media in particular really becomes much more significant because in, in the 1950s when it was just the BBC and even when it was ITV as well, the independent channel um, they, were, they were censored in a kind of an informal way um, so that um, they, they didn't see it as their job to undermine the political system. You could say it was something to do with the Cold War, but it was also an entrenched kind of deference um, but also deference, well Many of the people that were running the BBC and ITV were the very same people that were running the political party. So, and so it was all part of a cosy little um, little thing. And so it was very difficult. Sometimes it happened, but it was very difficult to get anything that was critical of politicians. Um, you could do it in comedy, but by and large, that was about it. And as I've already mentioned, Dennis Potter, who who was himself, you know, member of the Labour Party, it was a it was a, a kind of a dark comedy about an election campaign. He. He had to change his, his programme in different ways. There were various cuts. And he, cl- and he claims that someone from the BBC during this process just turned around and asked him, are you a fascist? Just because he was gently, when the, you know, it wasn't like... Anyway, he was, he was criticising aspects of, of the party system. Um, and so that... The prohibitions are lifted. So there's a kind that... So, so you can say more. But also, um, one of the biggest changes is in the 19, later 80s, 90s, when the regulatory regime uh, that, that, that uh, in terms of the financing of ITV changes, so that they have to, the commercial companies have to basically make as much money as possible 
um, through advertising, and they really do have to chase audiences. And that takes the BBC, which has to gain legitimacy in, in, in terms of government, in order to, to defend the licence fee and, the, and, and to try to get justify increasing it, has to get audiences. And up to this point, you would get um, side by side with sitcoms that were illustrating the, the flawed relationship between the people and politicians in very popular sitcoms like Steptoe and Son, but many, many others. You would also get dramas, drama series um, in the 1970s um, and the 60s about how there were decent people in Parliament. There were good men who were trying their best under difficult circumstances to represent the people. And there were many of them. Mm some of them on ITV, um, they disappeared um, almost overnight um, because in some ways, well, they didn't get audiences. Um, and so they wanted to, and politics isn't the most popular of subjects and never has been. It's a drama and comedy. Um, so as a drama series that basically says what nice guys these politicians are, you're not going to get that many people. And, and given that the impetus of the commissioning editors is to get audiences, how do we get audiences? And they then start to very, very consciously mine what they think the people want, um, which is conspiracies, dark-hearted villains, the bad side of politics. Um, and interestingly enough, when you do, because after, after the 2001 general election, which, which was figure in my head is 59.4% of the British electorate voted in the general election of 2001. That set a kind of a moral panic amongst the electorates amongst the elite to say, what, what, are we do- what are we doing? This is the lowest ever participation rate. Is democracy coming to an end? What will happen to us all? Um, the BBC came up as part of its remits, because it still had a kind of a public service remit. I've still got a weak public service remit. Came up with a, ser- a few ser- attempts series that did promote the idea of politicians as being not not, not as bad as you might think. And they didn't get audiences. Um, they were misunderstood that they were actually taken to be examples of the cynical um, dramas that they were trying not to be. So there's a, by that point, it's an entrenched audience perception that whatever is about politics is always about corruption and then the dark hearted villains. So even when you're presenting something in which that isn't the case, that's how it's seen. Yeah, I, the rise of particularly a conspiracy thriller it is really fascinating because um, I suppose much like the rise of uh, elite satire willing to kind of have a go at itself, it's not something that comes just out of the 1970s as a problematic and difficult time in um, British society and British politics. It's something that is bound up with transformations in the media landscape itself. Um, and fascinatingly, actually, Channel 4 is, is really crucial in all of this but not in the way of kind of giving space for, I suppose, what we might think of as kind of serious uh, drama, but actually giving space to quite racy, quite interesting, quite exciting thrillers that are grounded in much of the kind of conspiratorial um, ideas. But in turn, these conspiracies have, I guess, a kind of a longer route. And one of the examples you give, which I actually was quite fond of as a sci-fi geek growing up, is Kratomus. Uh, and I wonder if you'd say a bit about that and maybe its relationship to something like uh, Defence of the Realm or a very British coup, which, you know, happened 30 years later. Mm. Well, yeah, the rise, the rise of the conspiracy is, um, of the conspiracy drama is, is interesting. And, and as you say, it's bound up with all kinds of cultural developments. Um, but in terms of outlining in a drama, in a dramatic form, um, the idea that politicians are not necessarily representing the popular interest, but maybe another interest, which is hidden. 
which is kind of one of, one of the abiding themes of political drama. It comes and it goes. It, it didn't need the 1970s and subsequent events for it to, to be there, but it developed much more strongly. Yeah, that the, the conspiracy, certainly on television, which, as I say, was quite heavily censored in the 1950s, and Quatermass II, the second of the Quatermass trilogy, which was about a, a scient- uh, an honourable scientist trying to do good and find out the truth of everything, um, which was uh, broadcast in 1955, is essentially an anticipation of the invasion of the body snatchers, in which aliens take over the bodies of humans. Um, but the, the thing about it is that it's about aliens taking over the bodies of the Prime Minister, top civil servants, and, and establishing secret, established, established secret government um, germ warfare um, factories, which, of course, were, that's what the real government was doing in the 1950s. And Nigel Neal, who wrote Quatermass, was interested in what was going on in the secrecy, what was really going on behind those uh, barbed wire fences. And the, in, in, in Quatermass too, the answer is, it's an alien, there are a series of alien feeding stations which are to help the alien invasion and to take over of Earth. So basically, he's, which you, can, you can think, well, what's that got to do with politics? But he's, he's basically feeding off contemporary uh, political issue, secrecy uh, in the Cold War. What is government doing? A lack of trust in the motives of government. But of course, you can get that on the BBC, and it's it a very, 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 very popular um, series. Because it isn't really about politics, it's science fiction. And you can get away with, like in comedy, you can say things because people just think, oh, it's comedy, isn't it? But if you said the same thing in a drama, then, then you'd be censored. Or if it's a contemporary drama set in the present day dealing with a real issue. So the conspiracy was there being, being expressed, but in a very elliptical, sideways form. And that, was, that, that continues to be the case. And it's set in the future, science fiction setting, Doctor Who also picked up on certain things that, you know, you couldn't say if it was a drama in the 1960s. Um, and in some ways, you know, that, that's kind of always, that's, that, that's, that's an ever-present thing, but it kind of really takes off the conspiracy as a drama, which, which is depicting in real time, contemporary, or just set a, a year or two ahead of, of real time, with real politicians in real Westminster setting, this is not, we're not making this up, um, kind of thing, is in the 1980s which is partly a response of left-wing dramatists to write kind of sexy, uh, popular stories um, and chase an audience. But the other is also to advance their own idea of how things are actually happening, which is, and the most famous one, I think the first of the most famous ones um, is is the novel written by Chris Mullin, the Labour of the far left. Um, he becomes an MP, but at this point in time, he's a supporter of Tony Benn, active, prominent supporter of Tony Benn. And in the early 1980s, there was an attempt to turn the Labour Party into a radically socialist vehicle that would unilaterally disarm, that may, might leave NATO, might leave the EU, become kind of neutralist, nationalise all sectors of the economy. They're very, they're very opposite of Thatcher, as, as what would actually happen. But... Mullen wanted to imagine what might happen if this if this kind of government got elected, and um, and he wrote this novel, which the government gets elected, but then is undermined by the British military, the establishment, the BBC, the Americans, and it's implied very strongly at the very end that there's a kind of quiet coup. There's no, it's not like Chile, but the the effect is that the, the democratic elected government has just been replaced by one that's more amenable. Um, and when Tony Benn reads it and reviews it, he says this is how it could be. You know, so it's actually 
there's a sort of political culture on the left that sees society and sees politics in these in these ways. Um, but that becomes a much more that merges into a much more um, mainstream view of politics, which it, it does actually ironically tap into this more populist, apolitical, or possibly right wing. Um, yeah, kind of perception, um, which it, it all kind of goes into one because the same fears are really obviously present mm. uh, in the great kind of uh, triumphant political comedy of the right, or perhaps the centre right, yes. uh, which is yes minister and then yes prime minister, where mm. uh, you know a sort of hapless, to an extent, idiotic. Uh, Minister uh, is depicted as being, however well intentioned or however you know interesting his policy idea is thwarted by this great uh, establishment. Yes. That, uh, in yes, Minister case is kind of protecting those forces that the left seem to be critical of, uh, but perhaps protecting them, I suppose, in a different way for different reasons. Yes. Um, well, there's there's a line in in the uh, in the conspiracy film um, Hidden Agenda, um, in which someone who's leading a conspiracy says to um, the honest copper who's trying to expose it, "Well, all politics is a conspiracy." And yes, minister kind of feeds into that that idea that the civil service, in particular, um, is a self interested force that will always subvert the popular will. Pop- the, if democracy is meant to be the expression of, of popular sovereignty, um, why why are the people never sovereign? Which is a, one, one of the standard questions which political fictions seek to answer, or at least highlight the problem. If they never they never really quite answer them because it's complicated. It would be very complicated, very dull. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would be very yeah, no, Not many people would want to, but they highlight the program. They highlight the problem in different ways. Yes, ministers, um, kind of highlighting of it, which fed into um, what a lot of um, people were thinking in the 1970s was there were these vested interests in the state um, and the civil service um, was was the leading element of it. The trade unions were as, as, as well, um, which would constantly subvert um, whichever party was in office and would do their own thing. And they would fleece the honest taxpayer, taxpayer and use their money to feather bed their own kind of lifestyles um, and Yes Minister was kind of interesting because I mean it was co-written by somebody who wrote speeches for Margaret Thatcher and in the end was knighted by Margaret Thatcher and himself was very strongly influenced by um, kind of public choice economics and was quite explicit about that and the person that co-wrote it, uh, Jonathan Lynn claimed to be from this early 60s satire, I mean he was kind of of that generation that came after Footlights and after Monty Python and was a kind of thought of himself as this freewheeling radical where all politics is, is a conspiracy but didn't have a right-wing agenda. Although I did come across a letter in the Thatcher Papers where, of him congratulating Margaret Thatcher on a 1983 victory, which in itself was interesting. But um, certainly the way that Margaret Thatcher appropriated the comedy and identified with it and let it be known this was her favourite show because it basically was coterminous with what she thought. So there's, there's, yeah, there's different kinds of conspiracies. There's a right-wing conspiracy, there's a left-wing conspiracy... Um, there's all manner of conspiracies, but they all kind of go back to the same root, which is you can't trust people with power. Um, and those fictions kind of tread those those boards again and again as the context changes. The, the, conspir- the nature of the conspiracies change. Um, so um, yeah, I become much more explicit. Um, 
and also by the top our own day, and certainly with New Labour, New Labour becomes part of a conspiracy, but instead of having actors playing fictional politicians, actors playing Tony Blair. It's actually Tony Blair that's being depicted. Before we talk about New Labour, because New Labour sort of is where a lot of these uh, trends and changes um, can come together really interestingly. Basically all we've talked about so far has been men. And partially this is because, as you say at the start of the book, you know, the way um, fiction depicts politics is almost always uh, with kind of men as its kind of key players. And women's roles tend to be uh, things like politicians' wives um, or later on as radical outsiders, um, maybe independent councillors and stuff like this. And it's really interesting how both um, the role of women in political fiction changes, but also how, uh, I guess, uh, things that we might think would be major uh, influences uh, on the depiction of women, particularly Margaret Thatcher's premiership, don't have, or perhaps only have a limited um, effect, particularly in um, political fiction uh, written by, in the 80s and 90s, many of the people who were in her government or on her backbenches at the time. So I wonder if you could maybe describe the kind of like changing uh, role and status of women in British political fiction. Yeah. Well, to some extent, political fiction has some relationship to political reality. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and obviously, um, the book starts in a period where no where women don't have the vote. And there's a very strong normative view that women should not be involved in public life at all, of whatever description. And so some of these political fictions reflect that. And so, you know, Trollops... Um, um, basically shows the disasters that may befall the political system if, if women get involved. Um, and there are others, however, that, that see women as having a role, but it's a very clearly sort of patriarchal separate spheres argument that the role of women is to inspire in the private sphere their husbands who go out into the public domain and, and are active in it and then come back and are then morally replenished by these angels um, who have got no actual role in politics apart from that. Um, so there's, there's a kind of um, the way in which politics is represented in fiction does reflect broader ideas about their women's role in politics um, and and one of the interesting things is, is the suffragette literature that that, that, that is that's produced um, before the First World War, which is obviously part of a camp, the campaign. Suffragettes were very explicit in writing plays, and, and in one case, a novel that were propagandists to try to make the case for why women should have the vote. But the suffragettes, at least in terms of those that produce the fictions, uh, see women as this, the angels who will change, transform politics, because, of course, all women are caring, all women are nurturing, all women, you know, they, they've got higher spiritual natures than men, and so they will improve politics in that way. Um, and actually, that doesn't really ever go away. Um, even t- today, um, if we just jump right, right to the present day, the idea of, of women and the role of women in, in politics, because the problem in politics in many of these fictions is it's the man. It's masculinity that's a problem. It's, it's these silly, middle-aged, pugilistic idiots who are kind of sexually incontinent and, and whatever. They're, they're the problem. We need, we need women to cleanse the political system in, in this way or, or bring the sense of the housewife, like in The Amazing Mrs. Pritchard. I mean, these are inherently sexist um, mm. dramas um, and, and perceptions, but they're saying that, that they're actually 
also trying to be politically correct. So it's very interesting, um, the confusion that's going on there. So from being a, a potential threat in the late 19th century, women are being presented as a solution. But actually, the solution isn't, isn't, a, new, isn't a new thing. It's a kind of a suffragette notion of how women and men are different. Now, the interesting thing about Margaret Thatcher is that and I'm, it's kind of interesting how her left-wing critics depicted a David Hare in particular, the, sort of the famous um, radical playwright of the middle class in the National Theatre, um, wrote a series of plays in, in the 1980s and into the 90s in which he depicted female conservative MPs who were clearly modelled on Margaret Thatcher. And the point about them was that they were not real women because Margaret Thatcher was not a real woman. Because if she was a real woman, she wouldn't be supporting and advocating all the, all the policies that, as, she, as she was doing um, in the 1980s. So, so they've often got a character who is this, um, an, another woman, but who represents women as they really should are, you know, true women, nurturing, caring, self-sacrificing. So in many ways, um, Thatcher doesn't make any... I mean, personally, Thatcher was not interested in promoting other women no, anyway. No. She, I mean, she, was, yeah. she, was, she couldn't give a, a monkeys about yeah. that kind of thing. And, and she comments as well on numbers of women in Parliament. Yes, which doesn't change at all until, until the New Labour period. Um, so, the, yeah, the discourse around, around women is kind of an interesting reflection on the reality of it. And the conservatism, actually, of many of the cases that are made for increasing the number of women in Parliament. I mean, there are many reasons for why you should, why, why you should want to have a more representative um, legislature, but many of them are actually based on inherently sexist um, notions about what a woman is. Yeah, and we see this, uh, I guess, kind of nuanced a little by the rise of particular kinds of identity politics, but again, not fundamentally sort of undermined. And interestingly, by the time we get to the age of New Labour conspiracy, um, shamelessly give away the, uh, the twist at the end uh, of, uh, of the book and then subsequently the film Ghost. Oh, the ghost, ghost, oh, ghost writer. Right. The, the female character in that is presented as, as being part of the conspiracy. Yes. Uh, and, and almost as, as part of the problem. Well, yes. I mean, the woman gone wrong. With Margaret Thatcher was a woman gone wrong. Um, she was a man. She was a man in a woman's body. Um, so that's a woman who is true to her... Her, her nature um, as being a carer and a sharer and self-sacrificing person, she she will be. She's often latterly, but even from the 1940s as well, she is the one who will help cleanse politics uh, as the out, as, as the outside figure. Um, but there are women, and this is a, a, a it's like the Lady Macbeth mm-hmm. character, which may may be tapping into that. But it's more than simply that. It is about women who are not true to their nature, their their supposed nature in the same way um, that, that there were very very rare but one or two examples of uh, in the 1950s and 1960s of, of gay political characters um, male male homosexuals and they are something always goes badly wrong because they're not real men so they're kind of unstable or whatever something goes wrong because they're not they're not real true truly natural men now again with them and this and again it's it's, it's a kind of minor thing that gay characters um, in, in political, British political fiction, just as in American political fiction, actually, they are they become the politically correct angels. They're, they're, they're part of the solution now. They're not part of the um, the problem as they would have been seen in it. Like, many, probably quite a few dramas. So um, again, it's quite it's quite interesting, very crude. Um, but because they because of 
changing perceptions of sexuality is kind of almost gone the other way. Um, it's, there must be bad gay characters, but nowadays I can't think of any, but there are, but there are loads um, 20, 30, 40 and, and beyond years ago. And I guess, I mean, I was going to ask you this at the end, but this comes up in, um, one of the things in the book is that, you know, you take all forms of fiction seriously. So there isn't a division between what we might think of, you know, elite forms of fiction, you know, that are just trolling or just Dickens or, or whatever, and then just theatre plays. And one of the particular kind of uh, popular or trash things is this Mistress of Downing Street, which I just found hilarious, the description of that, of, um, you know, what, what do you call it, a very well-endowed American president. And, and yes, yeah, black, black American which president. Just, just yeah. hilarious. And the um, kind of, you know, failures of uh, kind of, yeah, these uh, failed men and these failed women as well. And I guess there isn't an equivalent of something like that. Now, there isn't, uh, I guess, that level of stereotyping uh, with that level of uh, failure attached to it. Well, yeah, you've kind of caught, caught me out there. I, I can't think of one. I mean, it, it is... Oh, I don't think I would ever use the term trash. Um, oh, it's... It, 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 it might... Yes, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the best constructed of stories. But... Um, Kitsch is often more evocative and more useful yeah, to what because because it's trading on popular stereotypes. Um, so that's that's one reason why I, I like popular. I mean, there's a definite bias towards the popular because there's a kind of um, a logic. I mean, it's, it's part of genre theory. Mm. You know, pe- people wouldn't be producing this this tribe yeah. um, if it wasn't popular. And so for it's saying something to somebody about something. But um, there's a position issue as, as well that you identify quite early in the book. It might be in the introduction of the first chapter where there is this kind of tension between the idea that, uh, you know, can we have great works that are taking politics seriously or are we doomed to have political fiction that is just, you know, uh, regurgitating uh, caricatures and, you know, therefore shouldn't be studied by anyone because somehow it's just, you know, yeah, genre fiction or uh, there are just standard characters or, or something like this. Yes. Well, my my interest was in the standard characters and the recurring narratives, the repetitions, um, the, the rip-offs. I mean, why, why, why was it that certain things have been said again and again by the same types of characters? Like I mentioned the agents all the way back from Disraeli up to the present day. Um, why is it that that character is like that? So, in many ways, I'm I'm not that interested in in, in innovative um, fiction because because it is innovative and it would be for an elite and it is trying to say something new and it's very idiosyncratic. It's to do about the individual person writing it. A very interesting though that may be. That's kind of not not my thing um, because I want essentially because I've I've, I've got this idea that fiction. In all its manifestations, evoke is has got a relationship with popular sentiment. That, that these narratives help construct the popular narrative of real things, which obviously a lot of people, you know, constructivist, qualified constructivist, is what I am, I suppose. So it's kind of a standard view. So, um, but the, the problem for, for people that take this take fiction seriously, and there are there are some in political theories that they only look at the elite stuff. Because that's where these ideas are being expressed in their most limpid and clear form, and and that's great. But these these aren't selling. These aren't being adapted for TV. These aren't on, on the cinema screen, and therefore 
they're of interest, but to me, they're not of massive interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There isn't that connection between, I guess, how people are voting and those forms. Or not voting yeah. and the reasons why. Yes, yeah. I, I think a good place to conclude is New Labour, because obviously that's towards the end of the book. And um, it's also where the trends that you identify uh, of both changes in how politicians are represented, changes in uh, how media, whether literature, television, or whatever, functions. And also, you know, really basic um, things about how uh, drama is written, like the comfortableness of casting actors as living politicians, which, you know, isn't going on in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, people are very comfortable with having Blair, Brown, made by, you know, very good uh, British actors. So I guess the kind of... uh, the really obvious comedy is the thick of it, which is in some ways wildly successful, but is only getting comparatively smaller audiences um, and has a very particular view of politics set against what is, I guess, a kind of slew of uh, contemporary uh, dramas uh, that take place on the screen stage. Uh, and I just wonder if you can maybe compare and contrast things like The Deal. Uh, which is a drama about Larry Brown's quest for uh, the Labour Party leadership and thick of it. Uh, are they saying the same thing about contemporary politics? Are they saying different things? Well, in, in many ways, and it goes back to the idea of these stereotypical cliche ideas being expressed um, again and again. Um, the new Labour period is associated with that, with a with period of spin which is just another variation of why we shouldn't trust politicians of them lying to us is just that the technology and the form and the the word used is is different Um, and in some well the thick of it is based on a proposition um, and a very simple one and it's based on it originates in a very particular period it's um, it's the period of the run up to the Iraq war and the immediate aftermath when weapons of mass destruction were mooted and then never discovered and the interpretation of that by Amano Inucci, the producer and main, the main writer of the thick of it, was that the British people were deliberately lighted. They were spun into a war uh, for reasons that were completely false. So he's made, a, he's made a political judgment. There's a moral judgment in that. And that the heart of politics today is, is about based on lying. It's based on manipulation of perception rather than substance, reality, policy, actually doing anything. Um, and that's, and that's 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 clearly based, and a lot of people agreed with that. I mean, it's uh, many people on the, on the on the left at least believed in that. Um, but it's it's a political judgment, and then and that spawns a comedy. Um, now, yes, minister, to compare that, yes, minister was based on the assumption the uh, that that the state was. Um, a kind of a vampiric force sucking the, the taxpayer dry and the solution to Britain's economic problems was to reduce the size of the state and to break up the state and, and to introduce the market. Again, a very strong polit- normative political notion that was then the basis for a comedy. Um, so the new Labour era is uh, a kind of a development in, in, a, in a different... The details are different, but the basic narrative sort of force is the same it's these people are are lying to us they're screwing us and trying to come up with an explanation now the thick of it which i really enjoyed when i first started watching it which is before i started even thinking about writing this book the more i then was able to see all the other 
things were being produced at the same time about new labour and also how politics had been depicted in earlier periods, I was just begin I just realised that this is, you know, it's shaky cameras, it's semi-improvised, there are some great performances, um, Peter Capold, it's some you know, and, and obviously the Tucker character itself is it, it just it goes beyond um, that that particular series. Um, but actually it's not saying anything new, except it's saying it in a new form. But the interesting thing is it's saying it to a much more, a, a, a diminishing audience. Because I, I end up, I think, in the book by saying it, it, we've reached a pretty pass when, when, when a, a comedy series, which is attacking politicians in this, in this kind of way, isn't being watched anymore. And the, thick of it, the thick of it is audiences. It was first of all put on a minority, the BBC4 sort of digital channel, and then it was towards the end put on BBC2. It was never getting audiences of more than a million, much less than a million. Less than Dad's Army repeats, and Dad's Army's been going, to, you know, being repeated since the 1970s. Um, contrast that with um, Yes Minister on BBC1, although initially it was put on BBC2, which was a middle class channel, very explicitly middle class channel in the 1970s, 1980s, and getting audiences of 9 to 15 millions or whatever. And that says a lot about the different way in which the media is operated, but also it says a lot about what people, what the broadcasters feel able to show and to whom, and who is willing to watch um, stuff about politics. So I kind of end up with the conclusion that things have gone to a certain, you know, have gone to a, a, such a level that people don't even want to watch things which are just like you know, politicians, um, let alone praising politicians. Um, and in terms of sort of the thing I took from uh, the discussion of drama quite strongly was the continuity between, uh, I guess, the use of uh, political fiction as a way of talking about characters where there is some politics in the background. And again, you know, that kind of trilogy of uh, the deal between, I can't remember what the other one is. Uh, yeah, there was a third one. A special relationship. Yes, yeah. Yes. And these are stories about interesting characters, you know, yes. stories about complicated situations and relationships that aren't really to do with politics, uh, but uh, perhaps more character pieces. And in a way, there might be a, I guess, possibly a retreat from, you know, this is how politics works. Here is how we will educate you in the you know, trollop sense of like, you know, giving you a window in. Mm. And we're going back to um, those elements of trollop that are to do with, is a good yarn, is a good character. Well the, well, the interesting thing is that Trollope, when he wrote, um, it was clear that um, he was basing some of his characters on, on some real politicians, and critics speculated, and they said, well, that character's clearly Disraeli, and they yeah, assumed yeah, it was yeah, Disraeli, yeah. right? But it was never Disraeli, yeah. and it was written, so it was, there was always a distance between what he was saying and the reality, whereas, and, and yes, he was telling what he thought were good stories, I think, I think Trollope's terrible, actually, but uh, never, never mind on that front. Um, but these are on the screen. And it's Tony Blair yeah. and Gordon Brown, right? And we are seeing these characters behind the scenes. You know, we, we know what they look like in the front of the camera because we see, we, we're seeing them all the time. But these are t- purporting to tell us what happened behind the scenes. Now, they're telling us what the dramatist thinks or cares to think. And, you know, clearly there is some reality mixed up in that, but it's, it's dramatised. It's drama documentary. That's, that's the hybrid form which is possibly the most interesting aspect of all of this. And it's about how fiction, fiction about politics are now merging with the reality of politics. Because how do people consume politics? Do they consume it now? They're not not active in it. They they watch it. They watch it on the the TV screen. Where are they seeing these drums? On the TV screen. 
Now, we know, because there are studies and there's anecdotal evidence, when people watch these drama documentaries, when they see Anthony Sheen playing Tony Blair, they see Tony Blair. That will have a carryover into how they perceive Tony Blair. Now, the interesting, now, the, um, the Peter Morgan trilogy, which are all these Tony Blair's things, um, he's, he's got a very strong normative notion of what Tony Blair is, which is just, an, he's unprincipled, and he'll say anything to, to, to achieve greater and greater power, and he's obsessed with the media. He's, he's a superficial lack of substance, people just flow with, with what, flow with power. Right. Now, I don't know what the real Tony Blair is. He's obviously a very peculiar man. And we, we don't, don't want to comment on that. But I don't see why Peter Morgan has got this accurate insight into, into the real Tony Blair. As far as many people are concerned, at least those that have watched these things, that's as, that's as good a version of Tony Blair as the real one, because who knows what the real one is. So that there is something that's and it's all about the mediaization you know, of, of, of society and how we, how we view the world now through screens of different kinds and not, not reality, so far as we ever did engage with reality through reality. But I think it says that that's kind of the power of these fictions. But those are fictions, you know, there's drama documentaries made about all kinds of subjects that change how we see the past and the present and politics and anything else you, that you care to mention. Yeah, I, there's a wonderful moment in the book where I think it's a quote from Jeffrey Howe talking about uh, a drama documentary about yes. the fall of Thatcher where he says, anytime he's in it, he's like, no, it didn't happen like that. That's not accurate. As soon as he goes off screen, he says something along the lines of, I totally believed everything. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah that, that, that's why Peter did that. Or said, oh, yeah, he, he, he's drawn into it and he, he believes, you know, it, he thinks he believes that's what they say. So, yeah, he... And, if, and David Blunkett was, was, was a victim of one of these um, New Labour drama documentaries, a comedy drama documentary. And he said in his, in his diary um, that people that he knew thought that the events in, in, in it were true. And he, people that knew him. And so he got very frustrated. So, yeah, the, the beguiling power of, of the screen is it's, it's not a new thing, but it's the way in which the boundary between fact and fiction and the way that censorship just allows people... To, to say what, what they want. And sometimes, and certainly the production companies that are behind some of these, sometimes often very funny, um, very good. Um, it's pieces of it's pieces of work, um, dramas or, docu- or, or comedies. They, have, they claim to have an explicit kind of mission to expose politicians. So they've got, they've got a political agenda too. And that impact, I think, is... You know, if we didn't need uh, all the reasons we talked about for people to read the book, but that impact, I think, is, is a really crucial one, why it's important to take uh, the role of fiction seriously in the study of politics. Well, that, that's what I, I, tell, I tell the students at Nottingham, who are uh, the lucky ones who do, who do, who do the course when it, when, it's, when it runs. I say, well, you know, you're not going to be learning anything about how, how Parliament works and, and how whips operate and all of that. But hopefully, when you when you go out and you, you watch these things, you'll at least be able to ask questions and be less um, naive and more more critical about well, why are they saying that about this? Why you know is that really how Tony Blair was? You know, to to really raise critical questions. And given that this is how most people consume politics, or at least an increasing number of people compared to television news, which nobody watches and, and whatever, this is this is an important form of political communication. So yeah, it's kind of it's kind of civic education. Civic education um, is what I'm aiming at here, which is probably going to put off a lot of people from ever buying the book. But hopefully, it's going to be it's better than that. And are you doing more of this in the future, or are you going to do something sort of completely different? At the end of the book, you say, you know, we've just scratched the surface on this, so it suggests that there are more more books to come. But you know, um, 
is there a different research agenda in the future? Well, I, I decided, I mean, so far as many people in, in the discipline of policy is concerned, this is esoteric stuff, you know, what, I've, what I'm doing. Um, so I've decided to become more esoteric still. Um, so I'm looking at period dramas, because in the book there are various, there's, there's a number of period dramas are referred to, uh, period dramas um, which do talk about real historical characters, in particular Churchill, but period dramas of the, 19, of the 1970s and the extent to which they created a vision of the past uh, that was um, that was basically moulded by the present yeah. um, and to try to locate them in the crisis of social democracy and the supposed transition to Thatcherism and neoliberalism um, in, in, in the subsequent decade. So it kind of is looking at one particular form um, and trying to look at the evidence in, in much more detail than I could possibly have done in this book about audiences, about critics and the role of critics in constructing how people perceive these things and trying to locate in the wider kind of um, political um, events of the day because there's a very simplistic view, and I, I won't name the historian, Dominic Sandbrook, um, who comes out with it, which is really all period dramas reduced to upstairs, downstairs, and the upstairs, downstairs is a very conservative, class-conscious, um, very conservative period drama. And that kind of feeds into the rise of Thatcher, which at many, probably at every single level, is wrong. Um, so I want to look at how history is dramatised, how politics is fictionalised in that particular form, at that particular time. Cool. I look forward to reading. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr Dave O'Brien, from Goldsmiths College, University of London. On this episode, I was talking to Professor Stephen Fielding from the University of Nottingham about his new book, State of Play, British Politics on Screen, Stage and Page, from Anthony Trollope to the thick of it.